Please turn also to the book of Philippians in the New Testament. Using the church Bible, it's page 571. So the text for this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. We'll begin reading from Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you have given us your word, and your word is truth, that your word is dependable, that your word is unchanging. Father, we thank you that we worship Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, that death could not contain him. And Father, we thank you that because he was raised to life for our justification, Father, we have hope of eternal life. We have hope that though our bodies decay, that you will raise us imperishable. Father, we pray that you would help us not to put our hope in this life, in this world, but rather that our longing would be for heaven, for the world to come. Father, we pray that the lives that we live today would be invested in eternity. We pray, Father, that our trust would not be in our own righteousness, for we have none, but that we would trust fully in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for our Lord indeed is resurrected, and because of that, we have hope. We pray, Father, that if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work, transforming hearts. And we pray, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
Perhaps some of you don't actually know, but uh, my wife Melissa is, uh, is a descendant of gold diggers. So in the 1850s, in the 1850s, there was some type of famine, there was poverty in southern China. So her ancestors came to California and they were involved in the gold rush. So she is a, a gold digger, so to say. Very bad gold digger. Why would a gold digger marry a minister, of all things? And you think about what happens when families sell all their goods, they buy all this prospecting equipment, and then they move across the country or across the world, and, and they try to, uh, try to mine for gold. They try to pan for gold. And after you get a certain sum of it, you take it to this office called the assay. And they do this assay. They, they test the gold that you've spent blood, sweat, and tears to acquire. And children, imagine, there is such a thing that looks like gold, iron pyrite, and it's called fool's gold. It's not worth a thing. But imagine if you took all of that which you mine and you brought and the assay... They do the test, the studies, and they say, this isn't gold. It's worthless. How bad would you feel if, if you spent not a day, but a week, a month, several years investing in that? And that's when the test comes, you're told, this material is worthless. Perhaps the Apostle Paul felt the same way. When after all his life, he was raised a Pharisee, he was raised a Jew, and he advanced in religion, and he got to the point where he was saying, I was persecuting Christians. I was throwing them into prison. I was there when, when Stephen breathed his last when he was stoned. I held the garments for the men who stoned them. And perhaps some of you might realize there, as he was on the road to Damascus, confronted by Jesus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That you would think, as he's confronted with his works, and as Jesus speaks to him, unlike at the assay, where you're told this religion or, or this material is worthless and you're heartbroken. For Paul... There on the road to Damascus, he was told, your righteousness is worthless. And to some degree, he was heartbroken. But that was required that he might realize, this is where your true hope is. You have no material, no spiritual wealth of your own. Look to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If there was any heartbreaking, it came with joy. Because his material... His structure, his house had to be torn down so that he might see my true worth, my true righteousness is not anything that I have in my own hands that I bring. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Anything that your life amounts to, if you're trusting in anything that you've done, any, any philosophy that you hold to, uh, any, any good that you've accomplished... Those things are actually going to be barriers to you to embracing the good news of Jesus Christ. If, if your one hand is, is stuck trying to grab onto the material wealth of this world or whatever accomplishments that you have, whatever righteousness you think you've earned, 
That's one hand that's not holding on to the cross of Jesus Christ. I want you to see here that the Apostle Paul in this passage, he talks about all the things that were of value to him, the marks of true religion. And he says, they're worthless. They're worse than worthless. We think about this book, Philippians, often described by some as the epistle of joy. You think about the various letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. He, he wrote them to churches. And oftentimes there was some manner of rebuke, some manner of correction. And it seems as if in this book, Philippians, this is probably the most positive book. Yet it's not as if the church of Jesus Christ in any given location is without issues. There were issues. There was division. There was other, other things. Perhaps it was they were lacking in joy, if anything. We have some understanding about who these people were. The church in Philippi, in the book of Acts, we have an account, a profile of a few people who were part of this church. And, oh, wow, what a church it was. We have uh, the account of Lydia in Acts 16. Lydia was a dealer of purple fabric. That she was a wealthy merchant. And I understand that purple was the color of royalty. And there was some type of, a, uh, was it a mollusk or something, that created a certain dye that they used to make purple. So they had to harvest uh, this mollusk to make the dye. So Lydia was a very wealthy woman, being a dealer in purple fabric. Then there was this slave girl who had this spirit of divination. And the apostle Paul had exercised her, and that was a second person in the Philippian church. And the third that we're told of in Acts was the Philippian jailer. The man who watched over Paul and Silas in prison, and we have an account that he had the sword to his heart or to his gut, ready to commit suicide. And the Apostle Paul says, stop, don't do that, we're all here. There's no reason to be afraid. So this is the profile. Three, three members of the church in Philippi. Then we think about this passage, Philippians chapter 3. So verses 1 through 3, he gives warnings. He warns about the dogs for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. And he doesn't... He doesn't, it's no trouble to him to remind them about true religion. And regarding this confidence in the, in the flesh, he points out if there's anyone who has reason for confidence, it's him. He was, uh, of all people, uh, a Jew of a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That if there's anyone who was religious, it was him. If anyone had a religious pedigree, it was him. And he's saying that those things are just plain garbage. They're worthless compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Here, one of the reasons why I chose this passage is that we're thinking about the resurrection. And we could have gone to the gospel accounts, but oftentimes we see in the epistles, in the letters that, that Paul wrote, we find how central this resurrection truth is to all of our lives. You think about the book of Acts. That it was central to the preaching of the gospel. There's no resurrection, there is no good news. There's no gospel. 
And here, as we think about the blessings that accompany salvation, all of them are founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is a fact. The question is, how is that fact significant for you? So the truth that we see in this passage, Philippians 3, verses 9 to 11, salvation in Jesus Christ consists of joyful union with him in his life, death, resurrection, and glory. Salvation in Jesus Christ consists of joyful union with him in his life, death, resurrection, and glory. We'll look at this in four points. The first, the blessing of righteousness by faith. The second, the blessing of the power of God in your new life. Third, the blessing of fellowship with Christ and his sufferings. And fourth, the blessing of the eternal glory to come. So we have the first point, the blessing of righteousness by faith in verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. In this passage, the Apostle Paul describes two means, two paths to righteousness. One path is really no path at all. That's the path of the law. So there was Adam. Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. By obedience to the law, there was a means to salvation. There was a means to righteousness. And once Adam fell, that means was closed off to all of his descendants, of of whom we are. So there is no righteousness according to works. There's no righteousness according to the law. In Romans chapter 9, he describes how his people, of all people, that they missed righteousness. Because he said, we pursued it as if it were by works according to the law. But the Gentiles obtained it because they pursued it by faith in Jesus Christ. And so here, he describes this idea of being united with Christ. These these phrases, these terms, all refer to the same thing. Uh, Knowing Christ, to gain Him, to, to be found in Him, they all describe our union with Christ, which comes by faith. In verse 9, he talks about no righteousness by the law. Meaning, not by obeying the law will we be righteous. When you think about righteousness, when you think about being a good person, all kinds of people will talk about, hey, uh, my... My grandfather or my relative died, and this person was an upright and good person. Are you telling me that outside of faith in Christ, this person has only the hope of hell? Because if, if that is the God who will punish my relative, then I will take hell any day. Oh, really? Well, we start to look. We start to examine. Well, what is the standard for righteousness? Well, he was better than most people. He gave to the poor. He was kind to his neighbor. When we start to look at the external things, we start to look at civil good. Okay, well, civilly he was good. But was he good compared to Jesus Christ? Was he good compared to the perfect standard? And 
The answer there is that no one is good compared to Jesus Christ because he is perfect. He sets perfect standard. And I'll, I'll describe that for you in this way. Have you ever noticed that no one, no one uses in vain the names of the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of, of Hindu gods? No, no one recalls, no one uses those names as a curse. But people misuse the name of Jesus Christ all the time. And you ask, why is that so? Because there's something significant about that name. That name is a strong tower to which we can run to and be safe. No one misuses the names of of demons. They misuse the name of the true and the living God. So this righteousness cannot be had by our works. We have this other problem. We have this other problem. How do you cover for one sin? Not as if any one of us has only one sin to cover. But how do you cover for one sin? Because you can't try to cover it with your, your other good works, which are still flawed. That one bad work is still there. That one sin is still there and it can't be covered because all the other good works are all required of you. And perhaps, perhaps God uses the means of despair of hopelessness to bring us to the true source of joy and contentment. It requires someone, for example, Luther, who, who was in the confession booth with the priest, account, going over hours and hours of confession thinking, I might miss one. I have to cover all of them because I might miss one. That one will cost me hell. And the priest will say, no, no, come on, just, you've been here for five hours, all right? Can you, can you just go? And this is, this is what we ought to be thinking. If we're, righteousness is, is by what we've done. We can't miss one. But when you think about the righteousness of Jesus Christ, this, this should bring us to despair. That we can't be perfect. We're so far from it. When you compare us, when you stand us next to Jesus Christ, we fail in so many ways. It's immeasurable. But then you have Jesus Christ, and it's not work hard enough, try hard enough, and you'll be saved. The promise is, believe upon Jesus Christ, and you will receive the forgiveness of sins. And this is where the challenge is. No, wait a minute. I want to bring all of that fool's gold with me because it's a value. No, it's worthless. If you're going to trust in Jesus Christ, you have to throw all those righteousness out. Your own righteousness, you have to toss it. It's rubbish. It's It's worse than rubbish. It's holding you back from embracing the good news of Jesus Christ, the promise of forgiveness. Are you going to trust in Jesus Christ, or are you going to work? You can't trust and work. It's one or the other. Now, perhaps some of you are wondering, how does this righteousness by faith relate to the resurrection? What difference does it make? People tell me, hey, we can't prove that he resurrected. Did he really resurrect? I mean, around this time, you look at any of these periodicals, they run the the same articles every year around this time. 
And they were always asking, what, did he really resurrect? What do we know? How do we know he resurrected? The scriptures testify that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. What difference does it make? It makes the difference of your eternal life. Is this a hill that you should be willing to die on? If there's any hill to die on, this one must be it. The resurrection is of great significance. This is not one of those things where we can say faithful Christians disagree and they can still honor the Lord. No. If, if someone rejects the resurrection, there's nothing to Christianity that is left. That's right. It's entirely gone. It's, it's, it's a sham at that point. No Christianity or no resurrection, no Christianity. It's gone. If Jesus did not resurrect, let's follow the chain. If he didn't resurrect, then it proves that he was a sinner. And if he was a sinner, then you had no sacrifice, no sufficient sacrifice to cover for your sins. And then you're still in your sins, and you are still condemned. You have no good news. You have bad news. You realize that all kinds of people die. But Jesus is the only one who died a sinless death. If you're going to have a sacrifice, he must be perfect. That's what all the Old Testament law was pointing to. You, you, the animals had to be perfect. Had to be examined by the priests. And it was pointing ahead to Jesus who is spiritually perfect. So unless you're trusting in a perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice actually is worthless. And that has everything to do with the resurrection because death could not contain Jesus. The proof that he is sinless is that God raised him from the dead. He was raised to life for our justification so that we might be declared righteous before God. So that when you face Jesus as the judge... And he asks, why should you enter heaven? The answer should not begin with, I've done this, this, and this. No, no, no. The answer is because you promised me the good news of Jesus Christ. Your own promise. That your sacrifice is perfect. That you died on the cross in my place. And I merely received it by faith. That's the good news. What works have you added to it? Nothing. I haven't added anything to it. Your works are perfect. And they're sufficient to save even the worst of sinners. The Apostle Paul, of all people, here, he was saying that he had this hope. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I think about the impediments. The, imped- the impediments to believing such a message. And here I, I find myself in, in the coincidence, three coincidences. I think about those who believe in Reformed theology. So I'm one of those. And I think about those who are ministers. I'm one of those too. And I think about those who are involved in law enforcement. I happen to be that too. So three coincidences. And you think about Reformed Christianity. If anything, the most self-righteous group I've ever met. 
And then you have the worst of all, ministers. The most self-righteous group I've ever met. And then somewhere, maybe further down there, law enforcement. You, you combine all those things and you think about how someone can embrace this good news. God has the power to change hearts. doesn't matter how you were raised. It doesn't matter what impediments you have. Jesus Christ is one who is a saving Savior. He is the Lord who saves. Trust in His great promises. Cast all of your righteous works, the ones you're trusting Him, throw them away. Because... Jesus' promise, the good news of the gospel, is the only news that saves. Jesus is perfect, and he saves sinners. So that's the first point, the blessing of righteousness by faith. You have the second point, the blessing of the power of God in your new life. Blessing of the power of God in your new life in verse, first part of verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Around this time, people start asking that question again. How do we know? How do we know there was a resurrection? How do we know he was raised? Well, there's two facts. There's two facts that that cannot be denied. The one, the first one, the empty tomb. The tomb was empty. There's no body there. That's the empty tomb. The second fact. No body was found. So you think about, okay, let's, let's try to construct this, try to put it together. So the resurrection was a farce. And the proof is that we have the body. The disciples stole the body, and here it is. Where's the body? They couldn't find the body. The tomb is empty. They had no body. And so we hear in the end of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, that you have the Jews saying, hey, telling the Roman soldiers who are guarding it, hey, um, let's, let's tell this story that, uh, that the disciples came and that uh, you, you were bribed and uh, when the news gets back to your, your leaders, then we'll protect you. They had to make up a story. They had to make up a lie. The answer is the tomb is empty. No body was found. Jesus is resurrected. And we think about the power that's manifested in Christ's resurrection. It's also at work in your life. Romans 8:11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, perhaps you're asking this question. In this verse 10, why does the Apostle Paul mention the resurrection before he mentions Christ's suffering and his death? Didn't he suffer and then die and he was resurrected? So why does he talk about the power of his resurrection before he addresses those other things? Well, good question. Perhaps it had something to do with this had something to do with giving you hope. Giving you hope that in your life right now, 
even as you go through the difficulties of life, that you realize that that power, God's power, is evident in your life. Even if you don't see it, because we judge by our eyes of flesh and we miss all kinds of things. It's only by our eye of faith that we witness the important things. Think about the worldly view of suffering and death. The world thinks people suffer only because they're too weak to stop it. And they suffer at the hands of the strong who cause others to suffer and get away with it. So suffering by definition is because of weakness. Because if you had any power, you could stop it. And you can ask that question, how many people choose their own death? If anyone had the power to choose, generally they would, they would choose life, not death. Then if they, could, if they could prevent their own death, they would desire to live forever here. This is why people are talking about the, uh, the fountain of youth and still looking for it. But Christ's suffering and his death were willing choices on behalf of his people. That when Christ walked on the earth, he didn't cease to be God. He didn't give up all his power. He still possessed power. He still raised the dead. He, he still uh, did miracles. When he was about to be arrested, Peter takes out the sword, cuts off uh, Malchus's ear. And Jesus says to him, You think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels. Think for a moment here. A legion? Was that like uh, four or five thousand men? And... uh, Think about uh, in the book of Isaiah that one angel, one angel at night killed 100,000 men. So you, you do the math, that's, that's a lot of people. And we're, we're not even told that after 100,000 men that he killed, he was tired. But you hear Jesus say, hey, I, I, I have no shortage of power. But he says, how then should the scriptures be filled that it must be so? Here Jesus is saying, God, God had planned for me to go to the cross. That's where I'm going. I'm submitting to it. And that God's power is coupled with your weakness. Think about what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In your life, what God is doing, by His power, He's breaking down the the walls of pride, of sin, of self-dependence. And that's a humbling thing. For many of us, that's a troubling thing. That, that we would be shown, wait a minute, we, we can't depend upon ourselves. And that when God shows us that we're weak, then we're left with only one choice. And that's, we pray and we depend upon Him. And He shows Himself mighty. And He shows us weak. And, and that process just continues again and again and again throughout our lives. You think about how Christian maturity is different than any other maturity. Children are born, they're dependent. An animal 
Most animals born in the field, they're, they're dependent. Without parents, they die. A human born without parents, they die. And then at some point, as you raise these children, you instruct them, and, and you pray that someday they would be wise enough, strong enough to make decisions for themselves and be self-sufficient and pay for their own food and then move out of your house. You hope and pray. But then you look at Christian maturity, exact opposite. With maturity doesn't come independence or self-dependence. With maturity comes even greater dependence. Or perhaps it's just the perception of this dependence. We, we were always dependent on God. We just come to realize that we're more dependent on Him. So here, Christian maturity is not realizing that you're self-dependent or, or you're, you're yeah, self-dependent or independent. It's coming to realize how little you can actually do. And how much it is that you must say, oh, I, I need to go do this, this, and this today. I need to get these tasks done. And the more you and I grow in faith in Jesus Christ, the more we realize, I need to pray. Because I cannot accomplish any one of those things by my own strength. And that's the power that's at work in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave. This is the same power that's humbling you and bringing you to a greater dependence on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's the second point, the blessing of the power of God in your new life. We have the third point, the blessing of fellowship with Christ in His sufferings. The blessing of fellowship with Christ in His sufferings. And may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in his death. Here. How do people how excited do people get when we talk about sharing in Christ's sufferings? The thought oftentimes comes like this. I like the promise of the glory that Christ has, but I don't like the warnings in scripture about the sufferings for Christ. Well, Perhaps you can think about it this way. Before Christ wore the crown of glory, he first wore the crown of thorns. That was one of the temptations. When Satan came, one of the temptations was, bow down to me and all of this will be yours. So what Satan was saying was, hey, you know what? This temptation is, let's bypass the, 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 the crown of thorns, the crown of shame. Let's bypass that. Let's just, let's just go straight to the crown of glory. And Jesus says, nope, not going to do that. We're not going to bypass it. So also true for your own life. That if you desire Jesus Christ, if you're going to grow in Him, if you're going to have fellowship with Him, then we must say, you know what? His life... His death, His resurrection, I'm united to Him. Not in part of it, not there's the glory part, but we're united to Him in all of it. His life, His death, His suffering, His resurrection. All of it. And you think about the various means by which people may suffer. They might suffer because of their ethnicity. They might suffer because of the color of their skin. They might suffer because of bad decisions made in life. But here we're talking suffering for Christ is suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. You think about Paul's call. 
that God had said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You think about the early Christians in the book of Acts. That they suffered. And then they rejoiced because they said, we were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. The oddity is that with Christian maturity, that you suffer for Christ and then you consider it a joy. It's not a curse. You think about the various things that can happen in suffering. You think about the value of relationships. How valuable would a friendship be to you if every time you were in difficulty, you were in suffering, if you went to your friend and your friend says, no, I will not suffer with you. I will not suffer for you. It's not my fight. That's not my burden to bear. That's yours. How good of a friend would this be? If this were you, how good of a friend would you be if that were your answer? It's in suffering that you learn who your true friends are. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He's not saying, come and suffer and earn your salvation. No, he's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, hey, my true friends are those who are with me in the thick and the thin. Unless you're willing to suffer with me. He's saying, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. We have to think about the good and the bad. And through life, as we suffer with him, as we suffer for him, then you learn what is valuable. You learn to lean on Christ, that he is the one who carries you through. Psalm 2710, for my Father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. You realize that in some societies, in some cultures, in some religions, embracing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior would mean certain rejection and disownment, maybe even death for you as a son or a daughter. That families would actually say, This person that was once our son or our daughter is dead. We don't know who that person is. We will never answer a call from that person anymore. When you're left without family, when you're left without friends, it is then that you realize that our Lord Jesus is one who sticks closer than a brother. It's then that we come to understand his suffering. It's only in our suffering, how small it is, that we come to understand his suffering, how great it is. If you've experienced any rejection, any cursing, any despising because of the name of Christ, you realize that Jesus would have received far more. And that he took it gladly on your behalf because he knew that his suffering and his death would mean your salvation. All of you who are trusting in him. If you thought about this, we can think about all the things in life that are valuable. Well, if I am a Christian, that means society will reject me. And increasingly, increasingly so, society rejects Christianity. In fact, how are you going to make a living if they cancel you? Well, there's an answer for that. 
The question, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? We'll seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Trusting in Jesus Christ that he provides for our every need. This is the blessing of fellowship with Christ and his sufferings. That we come to value his sacrifice. That we come to value his life. And that we come to value his friendship all the more. And then the fourth point, the blessing of the eternal glory to come in verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here, you and I need a reminder about the brevity of life. Psalm 90 talks about how uh, a man lives 70 years or due to strength 80 years. And for those of you who are in that range, you can tell us how quickly that time passes. That your life is but a sigh and it's gone. Do you think that your life here on earth will last forever? You realize that it won't. That we will expire and there will be no more at some point. God in his grace and his mercy to us. If any of you have any health health ailments that you need to go get a checkup every few months or every, every year, that when those lab reports come back and they say, oh, you're still healthy, you're still upright. Those are all reminders. You know what? I get this health checkup. This blood gets drawn from my vein. That's a reminder. You know what? I'm not going to last forever. This year, hey, I missed it. There's no horrible news. That's years, there's more time to serve Jesus Christ, our Lord. But isn't that merciful that we have these reminders? We're not going to live forever. Because they're a reminder. It's a reminder to you and to me. What are you living for? Are you living for the present? Or are you living for eternity? Our bodies will break down. Outwardly, we are decaying. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We have bodies that are perishable. And they will go into the grave. And despite how good your casket is, your body will continue to decay. And that one day when Jesus comes back, he will raise our bodies imperishable. You see the difference? What we have here is perishable. It's going to decay. It's going to go bad. It won't last forever. And the best you can try to do is maintain it. And Whichever person who has lived the longest presently, back then they lived a lot longer, presently is something over, what, 116, maybe 120 years. That's the best you're going to get. But what God promises you is eternal life in His Son, Jesus Christ. And there's no greater promise than that. You think about all the promises of the world. They don't deliver. Jesus is the only one who promises big and he delivers greater. 
so that you might look forward to the forgiveness of sins. You might look forward to eternal life, that we who are perishable will eventually go to the grave, and that he will raise us up imperishable. That Jesus' resurrection was the first of many to come. And that if he didn't resurrect, nor will you. But since he did resurrect, by faith we trust that he will raise us up anew also. That is our hope, not this day, but every day of our lives. Every Lord's Day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The truth of it, the significance of it. And that we might think, even as we face the daily problems, how, how does this problem relate to my problem of eternity? My problem of sin, of condemnation, and my hope of forgiveness and eternal life. If it doesn't amount to anything, it shouldn't. Then we should say, we should not lose sleep over it. God has made us exceedingly great promises. Jesus is a wonderful Savior. May we trust in Him as we reflect on the resurrection. We go to our God together.